Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I am Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com. Coming to you live on 26 global audio and video platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, Blog Talk Radio, CastBox, Mixbox. It's just too many to name. So I'm just going to stop right there. In fact, we are proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM, number two on Feedspot, and number two on CaringVillage.com. We also have an especially exciting show planned for you today. Lynn Barrett is the author of Crazy, Crazy, that's how I should say it, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory. And her book is, uh, has come out already, January 3rd. And what else can I say about it? Uh, she's a speaker, a retreat leader. Uh, she's a survivor of early childhood trauma, as well as a retired elementary school teacher. Well, they deserve special kudos. Uh, school principal. Oh, quadruples kudos for that one and a church pastor oh my gosh it just keeps getting better and at the age of 45 lynn was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder oh my gosh that is that is that is something i know somebody with that and it's not fun now known as Dissociative Identity Disorder, DID. They're always changing the names of these things. Uh, from happy wife and mother to a suicidal woman who felt the crazy fog of dissociation take over her life, she embarked on a journey to uncover the secrets that overwhelmed her. After suffering decades of inner chaos and deep pain, Lynn now lives in a fulfilling an integrated life and considers herself a whole person again. Yay. Lynn is thankful for her wonderful therapist, friends, and her own dogged determinations to heal. Wow, what a story, Lynn. But before we get started, I want to take this moment to thank my last week's guest. Dr. Mark Sims is a hearing loss physician, and he helps patients to effectively treat their hearing loss so that they can connect better with their family and friends and remain independent. And just a reminder, you can watch and listen to that interview and all our interviews, including today's, on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of our other 26 global networks that I mentioned earlier. All right, enough of that. Lynn, welcome to the Caregiver Dave Show. We are so excited to have you on. Well, uh, hi, Dave, and I'm really happy and excited to be here today. Good. It always helps when the guest is excited and happy to be here. <laughs> I always like to ask my guests just who is Lynn Barrett and why was she placed on this earth? Oh, my goodness. What a big question. That's the whole um, story that you just <laughs> took five minutes to describe, and I took five years to write. So um, uh, Lynn Barrett uh, is, um, I think, a, um, a smart and uh, creative woman um, who uh, discovered that she was um, uh, it, it was in a very difficult way during about really 
when you think of it, 30 years of my life. And I think the reason why I'm on this earth is, um, is to help other people. And I've done that throughout my life in my various professions. But right now, I'm doing it with other people who have dissociative identity disorder or other dissociative disorders. Um, I do it by um, uh, having published my book, which is a, uh, uh, I think, really helpful for people uh, who have this disorder. It's helpful for their therapists. It's helpful for uh, their friends because they can see it playing out. And it's also helpful because it's um, uh, it, it, because there's a happy ending story. Um, and uh, I'd like to think that I am an inspiration or a beacon of hope for people who are in the midst of this because it's not a fun disorder. It's a very agonizing and miserable place to be. So I have a relative who has multiple personality disorders. Is that what we're talking about? It is. Yes, it is. And, oh my gosh. First of all, let's talk about that. What is it and how bad is it and why is it so bad? And is there any hope? I mean, the, the recidivity rate, if that's the right word, uh, is not very good when you look at people recovering from this. And here you are considering yourself recovered and a, and a whole person again. Oh my gosh, if that could only happen to this relative of mine, what are the odds, Lynn? Well, I don't know what the recidivism rate is. I haven't actually heard that term used for it before, and it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it's it? It's probably the wrong term because I used it. <laughs> well, what I would say is that it, with um, uh, trauma-informed therapy um, and the right supports in place, that it is very um, manageable eventually. But it isn't manageable in the beginning. That's exactly right. Define eventually. Well, let's start from the beginning. In 1992, I was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder. It was changed. The name was changed two years later to dissociative identity disorder. And I think that happened because they began to understand the disorder better. And they realized that it had to do with more than just having multiple selves but it had to do with the, um, uh, the, the, the coping strategy uh, called dissociation, which everyone uses uh, when they are experiencing some form of trauma. Um, so, so dissociation means that the, the, the body and the mind kind of separate briefly or temporarily for a period of time and it's a normal bodily mind reaction so like even when you're sitting in a um uh, a boring lecture in a, a a big lecture hall and um you're right by the window and you're looking at the birds and the trees and the uh, kids uh, playing soccer and you the 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 lecture drones on and on and on your mind leaves your body and it's out there with the kids and with the birds because you are bored and that is actually a very basic form of dissociation but dissociation can also protect people um and uh so a person a, 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 veter- a, a, a soldier who is on the battlefield, um, he uh, may experience dissociation while he's on the battlefield, and he may continue to experience it with PTSD when he's back home. You separate yourself 
your mind from your body so that the trauma you're experiencing is bearable. It's the same is true for, for women who are, have been raped. They may dissociate in order to survive the encounter and they may continue to dissociate when they are um, uh, back you know, in real life. Now, the difference between DID, dissociative identity disorder, and the examples that I shared with you is that the trauma happens in a young child um, while their brain is still developing. Yes. And if, if this trauma happens over and over and over again, and particularly if the trauma is being perpetrated by a caregiver that the child is relying on, the, the child has no escape and, and they have to go back and, uh, and trust that person. So a part of them doesn't know anything about the abuse or the trauma or whatever it may be and goes back and trusts their caregivers. And then other parts of them hold the trauma, may hold emotion, may hold specific experiences, um, may hold specific roles or gifts or, or uh, you know, talents uh, or, or, or anger or um, shame or whatever. So our, our parts that were formed when we were very small children um, were able to form because our brains were still developing. Uh, so if the same kind of trauma happens to, say, a 15-year-old, they will be very, um, they, they may dissociate and they will have some very serious um, conditions, but they will not have dissociative identity disorder because their brain is already fully formed. So anyway, I, I kind of wanted to sort of explain that's sort of the, the foundation of what DID yeah. is. Yeah. Um, so is it genetic or is it learned? Uh, and I know it, it happens mostly uh, when someone is younger. The reason I ask is because this relative's father kind of uh, acts the same way when they realize that you're talking about something serious and they don't want to talk about it. And then they just kind of leave mentally. So is it genetic or is it just well, learned? There's, it, 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 I, I'm not sure. So dissociative identity disorder is not genetic, but there may be a predisposition towards dissociation. So in the same family, you may have three children who are experiencing the same kind of trauma and one may develop DID. Another may become a um, um, behavior problem in school and then go on to become an alcoholic or some other kind of act um, in, in adulthood. And the third may manage in some totally different way. So each of us has a, a response to trauma differently but um, I, they do think that there may be a genetic predisposition to dissociation. Um, but we're not born with dis dissociative identity disorder. You have to have the trauma to trigger the splitting of, a, of the parts. And what kind of trauma? I mean, uh, this person is a, is a product of divorce. Is that enough of a trauma to cause this? I, 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 I don't know that I can actually speak to that directly. I think that divorce can be really traumatic and it depends on how. Let me parents... add an adjective, an ugly divorce. <laughs> well, if it was an ugly divorce that went on and on and on, um, that and could using be... children as pawns and weapons. Exactly. Those... And if it happened when the child was very young, but yeah. the other thing that I want to say is that very often people will say, well, I 
have this. And I, um, but nothing ever happened to me when I was young. You know, it happened to me when I was 12 or 13. Well, maybe they can't remember it though. No, that's exactly right. It takes time. And so eventually the other things that may have happened to them um, may come out over time. And part of the problem is being in denial that you even have this and you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to go see a therapist, et cetera. And that just prolongs it. And here you may have people in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who are still dealing with this because they've never admitted that there's a problem. Yes? Well, that's absolutely true. And I, so they say that between 1% to 3% of the population has DID, which is not um, a rare condition. That, that's, uh, that actually is uh, about equivalent to um, bipolar disorder. Um, and, um, so, so many of us, uh, experience that this, but we don't want to, we, it's called the hidden disorder, uh, because it was, it happens inside of us so that we don't know about what, what, what's going on and that the rest of the world doesn't know what's going on. So we will do anything to hide it from people. I am 74 years old. And I am only coming out of the closet now. Wow. I um, I went to seminary, and uh, my seminary um, uh, published an uh, article on me last fall because of the book coming up. I re- the day after it was published, I got an email from someone who had graduated years after I graduated. Never knew this person; had no idea who it was. And this person emailed me and said. I almost fell out of my chair when you when I read this article about you. I was diagnosed 20 years ago, and I have never told anyone because of fear. Now, I want you to think about that. She never told anyone because of fear. We are terrified to tell people that this is what we what, that this is our condition. And there are several reasons for that. One of them dates back to our childhood where we were really programmed not to tell and to be told that we're going to be hurt or our family's going to be hurt or we're going to get in trouble if we tell. So some of that fear comes from the past. Some of the fear is actually quite legitimate in the present because, um, you know, if the world has a skewed understanding of DID and people may uh, shun us, they may not hire us, they may fire us, they may um, uh, do all sorts of things when they find out we have DID. And so part of what I'm doing here is trying to um, be a person who can educate the public uh, about DID, that it's, um, uh, it's, it's a devastating diagnosis, but it's also very manageable in, in many ways. And let me tell you one of the reasons why it can be can be manageable once you're in in, uh, in treatment uh, is because we have different parts, and some of our parts may be falling apart. Some of our parts may be suicidal. Some of our parts may be ready to um, beat somebody up. But we also have other parts that are very smart and very capable and know how to function in the real world. And so we can function in the real world. Um, and, and of course, that's not to minimize the fact that there, that, that, um, there may be periods of our lives where we're not functioning well, because that is true. Mm. But eventually, we can come to a place where we can function. Wow. Um, 
have did you get any reservations or criticism or pushback on calling your book crazy? I did. Absolutely. I did. That's um, supposed to be a word today that we're not supposed to say, right? It is. It's, it's, it's a politically uh, incorrect word to <laughs> use. And I, um, I did have a, a little bit of feedback um, actually on Facebook and, you know, some other sites like that. And this is before I actually published. And so actually, so I was a ple- I was pleased to get the feedback because then I could do some research and I, um, you know, posted on some sites that had uh, other people with DID on it. And so I, I think that the, in the end, I chose to go ahead with the word quite crazy. But what happened is I, I, I went back to look at uh, my, uh, my book to see if I could take that word out. <laughs> and I couldn't because crazy is the only word I could come up with to describe how I felt. It's not who I was. It's how I felt. I wasn't crazy. I just felt crazy. And when I dedicated my book, I dedicated it to people with DID who are not crazy, but who feel crazy because of the crazy things that Mm. were done to them. Wow. That's like me. You know, I I wrote a book that I wanted to call uh, Caregivers Must Be Selfish in Order to Survive. And you can't believe all the pushback I got from I that word selfish. Um, I was finally vindicated when I went on TED Talk and they actually liked the word and they encouraged me to use that uh, phrase, caregivers must be selfish in order to survive. And so uh, just two different perspectives, huh? And I like that um, yeah, because I really, I, I, I would say that too to people to, with DID that we, we have to be selfish um, to take care of ourselves first. Right. That doesn't mean we can't take care of other people, which is obviously what you do as a caregiver, but we can't be good caregivers until we take care of ourselves. And um, we can't be functional people out in the world unless we take care of ourselves. But, so I think that's a great title. And explain what is the shadow of traumatic memory? Well, because traumatic memory um, feels very shadowy. Uh, memory, as you know, I'm sure, is very fluid and volatile, and it changes. Uh, Shadowy, like dreamlike, you mean? Well, so, so, so cognitive memory, which is different from traumatic memory, is, can change at the, with the flip of a coin, because we remember this, and then we remember that. But traumatic memory, yes, is foggy, shadowy. Um, it's it be and this is because it resides in the back brain, which is the emotional brain. So our cognitive memory lives in our front brain, and our traumatic memory lives in our body and our back brain. And the, the reason why is because um, when an event happens to us and we take it in through our nervous system, it the limbic uh, the um, Uh, limbic system immediately decides whether we're in danger or not. And if we're not in danger, then it just goes up to our front brain. And it it feels crystal clear in our front brain, right? Um, But um, it, um, it, if we're in danger, it doesn't even get to the front brain, we go into fight, flight, or freeze response, it goes right back out into our body. So when we're experiencing trauma, the memories don't go to the front brain, they go back into our body, and they reside in the back brain. 
that means that the memories are often very fragmented. Um, they're very body-based. Um, they do feel shadowy. And it's not until you start to work with them that some of them may become really clear cognitive memories that move to the front brain. Uh, so that's why often people who have been traumatized can't remember. They just don't remember what happened because uh, it's in their body. Their body may be hurting. They may be having anxiety attacks. They may uh, be having triggers in their body, over-the-top emotions, um, but they're not remembering the actual event that happened. That takes time, if ever, to pull all of the um, narrative uh, together through memory. Yeah. yeah. So how did you discover and recover from your infirmity, DID? Well, I was um, in my mid-30s. So I was really a happy wife and mother. Um, and I had created a very nice life for myself. I had a husband. I had four children. The ID um, did not affect your marriage or your well, raising of your yes, children? Yes, it certainly did. But uh-huh. I, so, so part of what we do is we, you know, we are in denial. I created uh-huh. a bubble for myself. Um, so even if I go back before that as so an it's, adolescent. It's the pink elephant in the room, so to speak, yeah, that nobody yeah. talks about. Well, yeah. And, and I, I always knew that I was defective or felt like I was defective, but I met a man who seemed like a really nice man and we got Ooh. married and we had children and it seemed like a great marriage. I, I ignored the signs of infidelity. You have to read the book, you know, to know about that. But uh, I, throughout the years, I ignored signs of infidelity. But back in my, we were still married and happy, my mid thirties. And I started to have uh, experiences that peeled my um felt like it was peeling my skin off like I, I would I would get triggered or I would uh at the time I didn't even know what that word was um and I would have really strange and weird feelings but I didn't know what that had to do with I still thought I was a happy wife and mother and then in my early 40s um I discovered that my husband had been having an affair for two years And that broke the dam open. And um, again, I didn't know what was happening. I wasn't diagnosed uh, until I was 45 years old. So I went through 10 years of going through these uh, symptoms that were um, like not feeling real, uh, feeling like my um, uh, circumstances or my surroundings were unreal, often feeling like I wasn't in my body, that instead I was up in the corner of the room looking down at myself, going through the motions of life. Um, I had uh, my, my emotions and my thinking didn't match. I um, uh, had suicidal ideation. I had multiple strands of thought going on in my head at one time. If you put all these things together, you can imagine that it might make someone feel crazy. The odd thing was that while all this was happening, <clears throat> I was also excelling in the classroom. I, I had become a teacher and I was totally capable and competent in the classroom while my inner life was falling apart. Um, so I would go in the classroom and teach and I'd come home and I would just roll up into a ball um, and take a fetal position. Um, I did attempt suicide once. Uh, thankfully, that was unsuccessful. Uh, and that was at that point so 
you know, I had a part of me that said, I'm going to, I'm going to seize the day, you know, carpe diem, uh, I'm going to live until I die. And I had another part saying, you are pathetic, what a wimp, you know, <laughs> um, you can't even commit suicide, right? And uh, so then, you know, but I, but I worked so hard, I, w- I went to a therapist, who was a good therapist, but not uh, trauma informed. And so, I, you know, it, I was just trying to hold on by my fingertips and I, I couldn't, and, and I, I, I attempted suicide, you know, um, in, in, in um, the fall. And then the next spring I was offered the position of head of school at wow. the, um, at the school I was at. So you can see the, the total sure, connection in life there. And so I became the head of the school and I, um, I, you know, but then two years later, it was, it wasn't better. It was worse. It was just worse. I wanted to die. I was crazy things in my journal and a friend of mine um, uh, really encouraged me to go uh, to check myself into a hospital. And uh, my therapist said, said I should do that too. So I was in for 30 days. And, and so that really encompassed the first 10 years of my life, which was a downward spiral of decompensation, where I ended up in um, a hospital. And when I came out, I got a new job, I moved to a new town. And I just happened to to find a good therapist. It wasn't something that I, I I was just lucky. That's all I can say. And Mm. she understood DID. She knew what it was. Um, she didn't push the diagnosis on me. I um, uh, I didn't really believe it. I thought it was crazy. I'm just making this up. I'm just making this up, you know. Yeah. Um, did you get a divorce? Did you stay with your husband? I did. I got a divorce. And, and of course, that was, talk about ugly divorces. That was really <laughs> uh, not good at all. And so... Um, and but, the infidelity you know, was on his side, right? You were never yes, tempted to yes. do that. No, I, I did not. I, mm. I, I would never have thought of that. I was a very good girl. Uh, in <laughs> fact, I, I believed that he was good. You know, I, I, I couldn't believe any of the signs. Um, but um, a- anyway. Did his infidelity have anything to do with your disorder or no? Uh, it didn't. It, it had nothing to do with my disorder, but it did um, accelerate my decompensation. Mm. I would have deco- decomposed whether or not he had had an affair Mm -hmm. Uh, because I had already started to do that, but I didn't understand what was happening. Um, But, um, but it accelerated it because it mimicked the original betrayal. You know? Yeah. Tell us about your alters. I'm not quite sure what that is. You mean alter egos? What do you mean by that? Well, uh, people with DID have different names that they give to their parts. Parts is one name. Alters is another um people or persons is another um and uh that's the multiple personality that's right okay. but, but i'm 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 sharing the different words that people sure. use because out of respect for people because sure. um it's important to some that they be called a certain thing uh, i used to call them insiders they were my insiders um were they there to help you or to hurt you so that's a wonderful question <laughs> They saved my life. They save our lives mm. by by becoming who they are. They are saving us from the full brutal impact of the abuse when we were very young. Mm. Now that doesn't mean that they 
have little halos over their head and, <laughs> and that we really and that there's all warm and cuddly because they aren't i mean some of them are mean and ugly one of them one of my altars was a snake and he he didn't even think he lived in my body and he was behind my um you know suicidal ideation i mean he just wanted to get rid of my body so that he didn't have to worry about it because yeah. bodies just hurt you know he thought he was going to live on um but so yeah um um i'm trying to remember what your question was so i'll tell you more about my altars so, so the altars are they can be very difficult um but they they saved our lives and so it's really important and this is where a therapist a good therapist can help um to actually welcome our our, our altars and uh tell them that they're, we're glad they're here. And here's the reason why. Because we want them, first of all, because they're really just hurt children. They're just hurt children. Even if they say they're adults, they are hurt children. And they need to be welcomed. They need to be heard. We need to hear their stories. Eventually, all of our altars will know everybody else's story and so the amnesic walls will lower, and then we can become much more functional. Um, when we have amnesia between our parts, it's hard to be a functional person. So um, part of how we heal is to welcome our altars. I had several altars who came into the therapy room loaded for bear, ready to blow my therapist's head off. And wow. every time she would say, Welcome. So, so I'm so glad you're here. You're safe now. And I hope you'll come back again. You know, and she, every time she'd do that, it would take the steam out of them. You know, uh, it, it still took, you know, months and years and years to, you know, work through all the, the stuff. But it was like, oh, my gosh, this isn't what I was expecting. Um, so my first altar uh, that I met, that I really met was um, Rosie who was a two or three year old little girl who was the center of my system. And I met her in a twilight dream. I was half awake and half asleep. This was after I had come out of the hospital. And by the way, I was not diagnosed in the hospital. In the hospital, we had no idea that I had DID. Um, we were dealing with many, so many other things there. But I think it had stabilized me enough that she felt safe enough to come forward and she said it's like a riddle uh she said you have a twin sister and she is me but they gave her away and her name is rosie and i had no idea what that meant um but it sounded important so i wrote it down and it wasn't until maybe six months or more later that i began to realize maybe this is a part of me um, and as it turned out, Rosie was the center of my system and all of my other altars, um, even though they didn't all know about her, they all were there uh, ultimately to protect her because she was the one who she, she trusted. She climbed up into his lap every time. She would get hurt every time. She gave her hurt and her pain to Nanny, who was a different altar. So Nanny carried all the, the pain so that Rosie could climb up and trust again. Now, you were a pastor. What kind of a church were you a pastor of? Well, so first of all, I was raised to be an atheist. So I was an atheist um, un until 
somewhere in the midst of my decompensation. <laughs> and uh, uh, I really fought it because uh, my father told me that people who believe in God are either stupid or weak. So I didn't want to be stupid or weak. But slowly and gradually, they always say that God finds a way in uh, through our nicks and our cracks. And believe me, I was really nicked and cracked. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's how I came to faith. And it's a long, long story. You probably don't want to hear all of it. Uh, but in the end, well, I'm I curious is how how you're, I'm assuming it was Christianity, right? Yes, it is Christianity. And I so so I actually the, the, the school I was teaching at was a Quaker school and I became the head of a Quaker school. Wow. And so I started um, uh, my faith journey began as a Quaker. Um, but um, maybe 10 years down the road, I, I wanted to see what church was like. And I just sort of accidentally uh, walked into a United Church of Christ church, which is yeah. actually a very progressive denomination. Yeah. And uh, so that is, that's, that's where I, uh, well, I'm, I'm curious. I want to get to this question because we're running out of time. I'm curious how your faith either helped or hurt your recovery. Well, I think my faith was um, concurrent with my recovery. And I think it was instrumental um, for whatever reason. Now, I want to say, I know other people who are healing from DID who have no faith, and that is fine for them. We're all different, right? So this does not mean that anyone who has DID has to come to faith. Um, but I will say for me, it was a, uh, it, it, it was very, very significant to be able to, um, to, to proclaim a, a faith uh, in yep. a God that I was just getting to know, you know, whatever that God was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it took a lot of work on your part as well. How about your children? Uh, wh what do they know? What don't they know? Uh, how supportive are they, et cetera? Well, my children are, um, um, what's the word I want to say? They, they have, um, they, they were really hurt by our divorce, mm. uh, which was so very ugly. Um, they didn't know the details. It, no, they did not know the details, but they did, they could see the anger. They could see the, the, you know, the miserableness. They could see me struggling to keep hang on and they could see their father doing what he was doing. Um, and uh, the truth is that both their father and I love them very, very much. But um, I would have to say that um, it's probably the deepest sorrow of my life that I think we failed them. Um, so my children know about my DID and, 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 and they know about my um, uh, memoir. And for the most part, they are uh, supportive of that. Um, one of my children is not happy about that. Um, and so that's something that really grieves me. Because in telling my story, I did have to bring in some things about my children. So uh, I, I actually fictionalized uh, them in the book. And um, by that, I mean, the events with my children actually right. happened. But instead of having four children, I only have three uh, in the book. Uh, instead of having three boys and a girl, I have uh, uh, two girls and a boy, you know, so I really scrambled it up. So you couldn't tell who was right. who. Yeah. So what do you hope people will get out of your book? Well, I hope that people will come to know that uh, DID is a natural body response to uh, 
chronic childhood trauma, that it, that we are not possessed, that it's not outside forces that are making us act the way we may act, uh, but that it's our internal systems that may do that, um, that, that, um, that there's hope, uh, that uh, trauma-informed therapy can help a person with DID stabilize, ground themselves, work through the symptoms of abuse, and then work through the altar system to be able to either integrate as I did or to live in functional multiplicity, which some people choose to do. So those those are the things that I hope people will learn and not to see this as um, some exotic, weird way out um, yeah. uh, thing. I, I guess I want them to know, too, that th- this is all about childhood abuse. Uh, yeah. We want to pretend it's not there, but it is, and it's really awful. And um, yeah. yeah. And so um, I know it's only been out in January, but do you have any success stories yet? I'm, I'm thinking especially of people who have this disorder, are in denial about it. Why would they even be drawn to or pick up your book or if a friend uh, gave it to them, would they be offended? I mean, tell me what your thinking <laughs> is and all of that, how we can get the person who needs it the most in their hands and reading it. Well, I would just give it to them. I would just say... You know, I think this might be this might be interesting for you. Um, You know, there might be some parallels between what's going on with the woman in this book and and what is going on for you. And I think that's a novel or is it your story or how is it? It's a a memoir, but it's it's written like a novel. And I've been told that it's a um, third person page, page turner. It's a page turner. Uh, no, it's, it's written first in the person. third, per- third it's, person. It's written, no, it's written in the first person. Okay, because it's me. Um, and um, yeah, and I do. The other thing that I would say is that uh, I have a very active website, um, and I, uh, I I encourage people to go to the website, which might actually feel safer at first mm. than picking up a book because you can kind of look on the website and see. Um, uh, well, what's she all about before you commit to yeah. reading the book? Um, and um, I, I have a blog that I write uh, every week, although I have to say that uh, for the next month, I'm taking off a little since we're relocating across yeah. country. But um, I'm surprised you don't have a podcast. I, I, I'm the podcast queen. I've been on a lot of podcasts, but I, I don't, I, that's more than I think I can handle. Right. Um, and I, so, and we also, um, I, I, I started uh, dissociative writers, um, writers workshops, which oh. has been wonderful. And what happens when you come, if you decide to come to a, a writer's workshop, that uh, you find these other people who can who who know what you're talking about and if if you have just a if you've written a paragraph in your journal if you've written a poem if you're writing a memoir it doesn't matter what you're doing and how in depth it is uh you 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 can just be scribbling on yeah. a page and still come and here's the thing the people there you can't say anything you can't say anything that will shock anyone because everyone is so supportive and they, they, they've been there and they've done that. What city are you in? Uh, well, right at the moment, I'm in the Adirondacks of um, uh, in upstate New York. But um, uh, very shortly, I'm going to be in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, so, um, That's but a changing these, climate, these huh? 
these workshops are online though. So okay, so, virtual. Yeah, okay, they're good. virtual. So so we have people from England and, and Australia who come to the workshop. So wow. it's uh, it, it's it's all over the world. Um, it, it, but but I would say that probably if 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 your um, your relative is still in denial, um, she's probably not ready to come to a workshop. Yeah. But maybe maybe looking at the book uh, would be helpful, and maybe uh, just really encouraging her <laughs> to find a good therapist because yeah. there is hope that she can she can do this. Yeah, uh, I can't believe how how fast the time has gone. Lynn, how can our listeners reach you if they want to ask you questions or buy the book or whatever? Uh, thank you. My website is www.lynnbarrett.com. And I'll spell that. It's L-Y-N-B-A-R-R-E-T-T.com. Um, I also I, I have a contact form there. So if you just want to reach out to me and say, Hey, I heard you on uh, caregiver Dave's show. And I just wanted to talk to you. You can do that. And oh, I will yeah. definitely answer you back. Well, and again, a reminder that all our shows become recorded pod and video casts on our platforms that I mentioned earlier, like YouTube, blog, talk, radio, Podbean, and many more. And don't forget to check out our website, caregiverdave.com. It's a free membership support community, lots of tools, resources, free gifts, as well as my Facebook page with the same name or same name, Caregiver Dave. And uh, if you happen to be watching this and there's a like button uh, or a follow button, please do that. It'll help the algorithms with Google to help caregivers um, connect with us. And thank you again for uh, making us number one caregiver podcast. So again, to all my listeners out there all over the world and to you, Lynn, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, each and every Wednesday, making us uh, look good out there. <laughs> and until next week, same time, same channel. May God richly bless you all. Bye-bye. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise Like the birds will never sing again Keep breathing Take it in and let it out Keep breathing It's gonna be okay Believe in A Don't